Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Turn with us to Malachi 2. We're going to start in verse 13 for our scripture reading. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit And let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You guys can be seated. Let's pray. Father, we... uh, We thank you for your son, Jesus, as we um, dig into a heavy topic and a heavy text. We're just so thankful for your son, Jesus. We're so thankful that he gave himself up for us, that he might sanctify us, washing us with the water of the word. Pray that you would do that as we open your word here, as we dig into your word. We pray that you would be doing that process of washing us with the word. We thank you that he has done that so that one day he can present us to himself in splendor, holy, and without blemish. And that even now he loves us as his own flesh, that he nourishes and cherishes us because we are parts of Christ's body. We just thank you, Father, that we know that you are the one who in eternity past chose us to be a part of Christ's body. We thank you that you sent your spirit at some point in our lives to cause us to be born again to a living hope. We're so thankful for that work that we could not have done that you did for us. And we thank you that even now you're, you're nourishing and cherishing us. You're sustaining us by your word and by your spirit. And we thank you that you will bring us safe into the end. That the good work that you've begun in us, you will be faithful to complete. And so, Father, we stand here as your people, standing in grace, And so I pray, Lord, as we dig into this heavy topic and a topic that's very convicting for for many, uh, I just pray, Lord, that your grace would just pour forth by your Spirit so that we would know that there's no sin in this room that's more powerful than the blood of your Son, Jesus, and that we'd experience that grace and experience that cleansing. And Lord, we pray, that too, that you'd make us new people, as we know that you desire to do that for the glory of your Son, and we pray that in his name. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, as Josh mentioned, we had an, an unplanned park day. And for those of you guys who weren't here, you like you missed Cove Grace history. We've been through a lot of things, though. And so, like, it wasn't a big deal. You know, it was like there was no power. Well, the alarm was a big deal. We did have to evacuate. But it was just, like, kind of normal. It was kind of like, oh, I guess we're going to go, like, to that park down there and just see if there's anyone there. It was amazing. And... Uh, Sorry to any of you who may have come late and maybe thought that you were left behind. I could imagine for some of you that could be very traumatic. You show up to church, all the gears here, the people are gone, 
you might have been like, but their cars are gone too, and that's weird. But anyway, it was, uh, it was awesome. God provided a cloud that covered us by day, and um, it, was, it was really pretty amazing. So we're in this series, Generous Design, and we're looking at God's generosity and making us male and female and giving us work and friendship and marriage and sex and parenting. Next week is the message on sex. I told you I'd warn you, especially for you parents, you can decide whether you want that message to be a conversation starter. I would just say if your kids are like aware enough of what I'm saying to where it could be a conversation starter, you probably should have already started that conversation. Okay, so if you're like, I don't know, you know, he's only 16, <laughs> you're way late, okay? If your kid is in the sound of my voice and asks you right now, what is sex anyway? It's a good time. It's a good time to start. So anyway, I'm not going to say anything crazy. I'm just going to say what the Bible says. But as you know, the Bible gets crazy. So, you know, I could send you a list of verses and you could see what you think, but... But it's going to be great. I mean, it's just, you know, God's designed for sex. I'm not going to do anything weird. I'm not going to do anything like, you know, super transparent. Like you have some of these preachers that like, they bring their wife up and they start talking about their personal lives. And we're not doing any of that. So just, this <laughs> is going to be Bible, okay? I'm not going to turn into some weird guy all of a sudden. Okay. So uh, during this series, we have some free books. The book this week is Gospel-Centered Marriage. This is kind of like a workbook. And so... Later on, when I talk about cultivating your marriage, this is a great book for doing that. Years ago, Tasha and I were doing some date lunches, and we'd kind of like go through different things in here. I don't think we finished it, but you know, we had good intentions, and we probably got three in or something. But this is a great book, so I'll put it right here. If you will use that, go for it, take it. We'd love for you to have it. So this week, we're going to look at the topic of covenantal faithfulness in marriage. And this book, Malachi, I don't know how many of you guys have spent time in Malachi, but the book of Malachi was God's final prophetic word before a 400-year period of silence that ends with John the Baptist coming. So there's this 400-year period of silence, but right before that, he is telling the people their sins. And so what had happened was they had been sent into Babylonian exile for 70 years. They were brought out of that finally. There was a period of rebuilding, both physically and spiritually. So Nehemiah was handling the physical rebuilding of the walls and kind of getting the infrastructure going. Ezra was handling the rebuilding of the people spiritually. And so it was this time of rebuilding, but it was also a time when the Lord was confronting his people with their sin. He was revealing certain things that just weren't right in them after this time of Babylonian exile. And it kind of reminded me a little bit of this post-COVID time. After a massive disruption of our lives in a bunch of different ways, not quite an exile, but like a legitimately large disruption, and you're trying to kind of go back to normal and you're not sure what normal is going to be, and things are popping up, right? There's certain things that are popping up in your relationships. There's certain things popping up in your own character that the Lord's showing you that you need, to, you need to deal with, you need to work through. And so that's the situation they were in. Though the Lord had brought them out of Babylon and they had rebuilt the temple and they're kind of getting back to what was normal life for them, they, they realized something's wrong. There's something wrong. There's something wrong in their worship. They weren't experiencing God's blessing the way they had expected to. You know, something was off. Something was off spiritually. You can see in the book of Malachi, worship was kind of a drudgery. God seemed kind of distant. So in the book of Malachi, we hear the people crying out and complaining. Like, you brought us out of exile. Why aren't things the way they used to be? Why aren't things better? 
And uh, the Lord gives them multiple situations in their lives, multiple sinful patterns in their lives that they need to address, they need to confront. And he's telling them, this is the reason why you're not experiencing my presence like you expected to. It's because your sin has gotten in the way. And one of the ways that sin had gotten in the way was in the area of their unfaithfulness in marriage. You can see in verse 13, it says, And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offerings or accepts it with favor from your hands. So they're like, we're offering the sacrifices, but we're not feeling your presence. We're not feeling your blessing. And then you can see in verse 14, it says, and you say, why does he not? And the answer is, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion, your wife by covenant. The reason they weren't experiencing God's blessing in his presence is because they were not loving their wives. And this particular text is kind of real male-centric, not loving their wives. And that was because in that time, it was only the husbands that could divorce the wives. The wives couldn't do that to the husbands. And so this is kind of a male-centric command. But in our context, it applies to both. So don't hear it as just a, a command to husbands. And guys, if you're new to the Bible, you might be surprised at God's strictness about marriage. He's extremely strict about marriage. You might assume culturally that marriage is just, it's an agreement between two people who want to share their lives. And as long as they're kind of working well and they're promoting each other's happiness, then you should continue. But if it gets to the point where it's not really promoting each other's happiness and you're kind of making each other miserable, then, you know, it's fine to end it. That's kind of a cultural view of marriage. But the Bible reveals, guys, that marriage is a covenant instituted by God that creates a lifelong union between a man and a woman. A lifelong union. You say, well, what is a covenant? Covenant is a legal commitment that establishes a relationship. And this covenant of marriage in Scripture is not just an agreement between two parties. This covenant involves God. That God himself solidifies the covenant. And you can see that in verse 15. It says, Does he not make them one, speaking about God, with a portion of the Spirit in their union. So this is kind of like Genesis 2.24, where it says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So God makes two people one permanently. And Jesus says, What God has joined together, let no man separate. And it's important, like right from the beginning, to just mention there are a couple of exceptions to this. In Scripture, there's a couple of exceptions where God allows that covenant to be broken. One of them is adultery. Matthew 19, 9, Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So Jesus there is giving an exception that if a person's spouse commits adultery against them, they do have the right to, to break that covenant through divorce. Divorce is certainly not required in those cases. And I'll tell you, I have seen a tremendous amount of amazing acts of redemption after adultery. I mean, just amazing. To where, you know, I have very close friends that their marriage is better than it's ever been because of God's grace. And so it's certainly not required in those cases, but is allowed. And the other case would be abandonment by an unbeliever. So in 1 Corinthians seven fifteen, uh, Paul says, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. And so the other one would be abandonment by an unbeliever. I believe that abuse can also fit in that category. Abuse can create a situation that's so bad that it makes it impossible to live together. And so I think that that could fit in there. These things are so nuanced that there's no way to do that here. 
So if you guys have questions about that, I'll be up front. I'd love to engage on any questions you have about this and certainly to pray for you in any of these areas. But the divorces in Malachi 2 are not for those reasons. We can see that in verse 14. The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. So the reason for divorce in Malachi 2, the divorce that he says is sinful, is due to faithlessness. That word there that the ESV translates faithlessness is begad, and it's a word that means unfaithfulness, betrayal, or treachery. Some of your Bibles have the word treachery or betrayal. That's how God views these unbiblical divorces, is that their unfaithfulness, their betrayal, their treachery. And so the intent on teaching on this passage, and I think the God-given reason we have this passage, is that we would guard our own hearts, that we would guard our own hearts against this. That's actually the main command in this text. Look at verse 15. The command is, so guard yourself in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. And then he repeats it again in verse 16, very similarly. He says, so guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. Okay? I find this command tremendously beautiful because the text is not just saying, don't be unfaithful. The text isn't just saying, don't divorce your spouse. The text is saying something more. It's saying, guard yourself in your heart against this. It wants to go at the heart or what it calls here the spirit. Same thing. Guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. And so what it has here is that unfaithfulness is a heart problem. It's a spiritual problem. It's not just a relationship problem. It's something deep within. And, and you may be right now, this morning, tempted to walk away from your marriage. And this would be a perfect text for you. you know, and I, I think in a room this size, there's got to be somebody that's in that situation where they're tempted right now to walk away from their marriage. And no biblical grounds to do it, but they want to walk away from it. This is a perfect text for you. But you might be doing great in your marriage, too. This is a perfect text for you. Because, guys, nobody is immune to this, okay? If you think you are immune to unfaithfulness in your marriage, you're a sitting duck. I am not immune, okay? I am well aware I am not immune. I have all kinds of safeguards set up because I know that I am not immune to this. None of us are immune to this, right? And so this text is perfect for us. So we all need this, amen? Okay, let's look at four ways this text helps us guard ourselves in our spirits against unfaithfulness. And here are the four. I'm going to give them to you up front. The four ways we can guard ourselves in our spirits so that we won't be faithless are, one, fearing the Lord, two, valuing the story, three, consider the fruit, and four, cultivating love. So we're going to go through those four real quick. First one is guard yourself in your spirit by fearing the Lord. The fear of the Lord actually is a huge motivation in this text. The main thing Malachi wants these husbands to know, and they're actually, it looks like in the context, priests even, the thing he wants them to know is he wants them to know that God sees. You see that in verse 14. The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. God is witness. God sees. That's why they weren't having their sacrifices received. That's why God was allowing this sense of distance to grow is they were reaping consequences of their marital unfaithfulness. And lest you guys think, well, you know, that was the Old Testament. You know, God doesn't do that now. It's Malachi, of course. Consider 1 Peter 3.7. 1 Peter 3.7, it says, Husbands, love your wives. And then there's a threat in there. Lest your prayers be hindered. Very similar idea. 
that we can have a sense of distance from God and we're like, man, my spiritual life's so dry and my reading of the word just isn't what it used to be and I just feel like prayer life's such a drudgery. And, you know, what could be the reason for this? That could be the reason. Something to consider. It's how you're treating your spouse. It turns out there's, there's three people in this marriage, you know. The Lord is in this and he's witness to it. So if we mistreat our spouses, we should expect that. This text, guys, should be a huge encouragement to those of you who have been wronged in marriage. If your spouse has left you, I think the Lord wants you to know this morning from this text is that he sees, that he knows, that he is witness to their unfaithfulness to you. It says in verse 14, the Lord is witness. The Lord sees their treachery. The Lord sees your distress. The Lord will care for you. I think when we hear that the Lord is witness, we should think back to like, think back to Hagar and how when she was, you know, sent away by her husband and she goes off with her little baby into the desert and God meets her with water and God cares for her. And do you remember what he called? She called the Lord there. Bear Leroy, God sees. You know, that was a name that she had given to God because God met her there in the desert and the Lord's going to meet you too. He sees, he knows. Even if it seems like nobody sees, the Lord sees and he's going to care for you. And if you're right now in a place where you are actively being unfaithful to your spouse, this text wants to tell you that the Lord sees, the Lord knows. You know, the Lord has witnessed your unfaithfulness. You should hear verse 14 as a, as a threat and as a call to repent. You know, the Lord brought you here this morning to hear this. That's evidence that he sees. Verse 14, the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion, your wife by covenant. You guys remember when King David had sinned with Bathsheba and he'd done all these things to cover it up and he thought he had everything got buttoned up. Do you remember how that chapter ends? The chapter ends like this. But the thing that David did displeased the Lord. That's how the chapter ends. And then things get real, right? The Lord sees. Yahweh sees. Yahweh ponders. Yahweh is not pleased. Yahweh does not play. Have you guys noticed? He doesn't. And guys, church folks say the craziest things when they want an unbiblical divorce. And a lot of those things show that there's no fear of the Lord there, right? You know, people say things like, well, I'll never be happy in this marriage, and God wants me to be happy, so he's fine with me leaving in a way that's not biblical. And I would just ask you guys, who told you God wants you to be happy? I mean, fundamentally, you know, who told you that he cares more about your happiness than your holiness? You know, there's no text to say that. That's what you'll notice, you know, when, when we move away from the biblical grounds for divorce and we start to get into like other grounds or we're looking for other reasons, what you'll notice is that there's no word of God in the whole thing. There's just kind of a vague notion of God wants me to be happy. You know, people in our culture, there's a thing right now where we think the greatest sin is to be unfaithful to ourselves. The greatest sin would be to not be authentic to who you really are. To not really take care of yourself. And so there's this real temptation to think that it's the most important value is to be faithful to yourself. People say things like, Eric, I know that this is against scripture, but God's given me a piece about it. I've heard that a million times. And I, I always say the same thing. I am absolutely certain he has not given you a piece about it. 100% certain. And they'll be like, how do you know? And I say, God never condones things he forbids. Now it's a weird sentence. He never condones something that his word forbids. Like, this is God's very words. 
This doesn't have like less authority than that feeling you have, right? It'd be convenient if it did, but that's not the way it works. People say things like, God will forgive me. I've even heard God will forgive me, that's his job. Okay, there's no fear of the Lord there. And keep in mind that the Bible, there's no promise in Scripture that God will forgive unrepentant sin. There are no passages like that. So I know this is heavy, but this is so important. I mean, if I were to avoid stuff like this, it would be malpractice. These things have to be said. So, and I know it stirs up all kinds of pain, and you guys have all sorts of different situations, and, and I realize that, and it's an incredible burden to even dig into all these things because, you know, you'd like to just sit down with each person and say, oh yeah, well, your case is this, you know, that kind of thing. But this is what Scripture says, and you need to hear it. So guard yourself in your spirit by the fear of the Lord. I think that's a huge reason why people pursue down a path that's not biblical. Guard yourself in your spirit by valuing the story. And the story, I mean the marriage story. Take a look at verse 14. The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. I think that's really interesting. That's always struck me that he says the wife of your youth. Now, why would he do that? Why would that be an important thing to mention? The wife of your youth. What is that supposed to evoke? What do you guys think? What do you guys think that's supposed to evoke? The wife of your youth. Tenderness. Tenderness. It's like kind of there's an emotional thing, right? He's like, the wife of your youth. What what else do you think it's supposed to evoke? Memories. Yeah, think about your story. You know, that kind of thing. I think there's a sense of like, this person, whether it's a wife or a husband, gave you their youth, (laughs) gave you part of their life. And to not take that into account is, like the text says, treacherous, right? But it also reminds you that you two have a story, right? And it's a story that's worth something. You guys had a youth together, and now you have a not-so-youthful part of the story. And that story is something you guys share, and it's, like a, it's meant to be an unfolding story of redemption, right? It's supposed to be an unfolding story of God at work in your life. You know, the best stories have, like, great challenges and a great hero that comes in and makes things right. Your marriage is meant to be a story of redemption, whereby Christ, the hero, comes in and, like, overcomes your sin and, you know, saves things, right? Um, Some of you guys have been through profound, profound difficulties. I mean, you know, we talked about adultery before. You guys have been through all kinds of stuff. And I would just say, like, that, as it's redeemed, makes the story just so much more powerful, so much more a, a, an illustration of God's grace. Like Christ shows forth in glory as marriages like that are restored. And so staying faithful to your spouse because you value the story. I mean, how do you want this story to be told? You want to be able to tell your great-grandkids how faithful God is so that they can enter into their marriage with confidence because they can see how God redeemed your marriage. You want to be able to tell a story like that. You want to finish your marriage well. You want to finish it with one of you burying the other one in the ground. Of natural causes. (laughs) I was like, that sounds bad. You know. But don't you want to end that way? It's so good. That wasn't in there. I was that at the moment I was like, that needs clarification. (laughs) Think about this. You want to rejoice in your resurrected bodies, you know, in the world to come, and just be rejoicing in how God had gotten you through. And you're going to be like, man, I was terrible to you, <laughs> you know? Like, God just redeemed that. He changed me. And it's like, oh, yeah, I saw that, you know? He did that to me, too. 
We want to rejoice in that. We're going to have endless ages to rejoice in God's work. So guard yourself in your spirit by valuing the story. Trust the author enough to keep faithful to the script he's given you. There's a story being built here. There's a legacy. Also, guard yourself in your spirit by considering the fruit. I see that in verse 15. It says, what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. God intended your marriage to have fruit. Genesis 1 talks about how they were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That your marriage was intended to fill the world with image bearers. That godly offspring includes both your children that you raise in your home and also all those you disciple, right? Those are your offspring too, spiritually. Paul would talk about Timothy as his son and stuff like that, right? So they're your own children and those you disciple. Your marriage is not just meant for your immediate happiness. Your marriage is meant to hand down a legacy of discipleship. Amen? You want a legacy of discipleship? You read in the Psalms and you read in the Old Testament from generation to a thousand generations. Now, a lot of us don't think that way because we're like, this is going to end any minute, you know? But maybe not, right? And we want to be thinking multi-generationally. You want to be thinking about your great-grandkids, your great-grandkids, your great-great-grandkids to a thousand generations. God's faithfulness, right? Years ago, there was a couple in our church who, they were empty nesters, and the wife had just gotten to the point where she was just done, done with her husband. And there weren't biblical grounds for divorce. It was like, she was done, you know? It was just years of kind of mistreatment and not cultivating their marriage. And so she told her adult daughter that she was going to get a divorce. She's like, I'm going to divorce your dad. You know, it's just gotten to the point where she can't do this anymore. And her daughter's response was amazing. This is her adult daughter said this. She said, she said, what makes you think you can do that? Your marriage isn't just about you. Your marriage is about all of us. She's like, I need your marriage. My kids, your grandkids need your marriage. We all need your marriage. The church needs your marriage. The world needs your marriage. Your marriage isn't just about you. Isn't that amazing? You know, people often think, well, we'll stay together for the kids, you know, until they're out of the house. But guys, what makes you think we don't still need your marriage when we're grown? You know, I'm 48. I still need my parents' marriage, right? Older people, we need you to be faithful to your marriage, right? Your marriage supports ours. I, I don't think you realize, I don't think you guys realize how much all of our marriages are supported by one another's. The more people you have around you that are like staying together and holding together, it makes us all stronger. It's like a vine on a trellis. And for you older people, like we need you to be faithful sages. We need you to be wise people who will lead us and show us this can be done, right? So verse 16, I think, points to that where he says, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. And I just think about that, that violent part, and I just think, like, there's a lot of trauma there, you know? And it's not just the little kids. It's the big kids, too. My parents are together, by the way. I don't know why I'm getting so emotional, but it's important, you know? It's super important. So think about that. Guard yourself in your spirit by considering the fruit, and then guard yourself in your spirit by cultivating love. I love this because we really need to guard ourselves against a worldly view of love, Right? Verse 16 says, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, now I realize your Bible probably doesn't say that. (laughs) So this particular part in Hebrew is, from what I hear from people that know Hebrew, is the most difficult part of the Old Testament maybe to translate. Okay, so if your translation says God hates divorce, he does, okay? It's not disputing that. And the ESV is not like, well, let's hide that, you know? That's not what they're doing. It's not really clear in the Hebrew 
who's hating who or what, okay? There's a he hating either a person or a thing like divorce, and it's not explicitly clear which one's which. So, you know, does God hate divorce? He does. What the ESV has here is, is true as well, and so there's no, no dispute over anything, you know, significant here. If you want to learn Hebrew and validate it for yourself, go for it, and you'll find like, wow, this is hard, okay? So, if we take the ESV translation here, it exposes our worldly view of love, and I'll show you how. Notice that the Lord holds these men responsible for their lack of love. Look at verse 16, if this is what your says. The man who does not love his wife but divorces her covers his garment with violence. Interesting thing here is our culture tends to think of love as something we have no control over. Okay? So it's something we fall into. It's something we could fall out of. We could lose it and not be able to find it, not catch it. You know, it's like this fleeting thing. It's kind of like the old school Cupid thing. Like you get hit with the arrow or not get hit with the arrow and maybe the arrow goes away. That kind of a thing. Like it's a fleeting forest creature. I had it, and then like, where'd it go? You know, and then you're looking for it, and you're like, I wish I could get it back, but I can't find it. You hear people talk this way, right? It's a cultural view of marriage. You know, we just don't love each other anymore. We've fallen out of love. We can't fix it. But notice, guys, in verse 16, that the Lord holds you responsible to love your spouse, right? He actually says, the man who does not love his wife but divorces her covers his garment with violence. It's not like, oh, he stopped loving and like, poor him because he really would want to, but he can't, so hard to get it back. No, he actually holds us responsible for continuing to love, which shows us that love might not just be an emotion, turns out. Crazy. But it might not just be a feeling. It might be something more. Uh, Notice in verse 16, that love, guys, the reason why we're responsible to keep loving our spouse, and it's not something that's kind of out of our control, is that real love is covenantal. Real love is covenantal. And marriage is a covenant. I mentioned the covenant earlier. What is a covenant relationship? A covenant relationship, best way to describe it is a covenant relationship is the opposite of a consumer relationship. So consumer relationship, covenant relationship, they're different. So a consumer relationship sounds like this. I'm all in as long as you meet my needs. That's a consumer relationship. And that's the kind of relationship you have with your customers, with your clients. That's the kind of relationship you have with stores. And that's fine. You know, you don't have to be undyingly committed to Target. Like, I know you are already, but you don't have to be. Okay, if they stop meeting your needs, you could just discontinue. You're a customer. That's fine, right? You might have some very loyal customers, but at some point, if you don't meet their needs, they're gone. And that's normal because you're a vendor they're a customer. A covenant relationship is the opposite. It doesn't say, I'm all in as long as you meet my needs. It says, I'm all in even when you don't meet any of my needs, and even if it costs me everything. That's a covenant relationship, and no customer has that relationship with you, right? That's a, that's a covenant relationship. Covenant relationship is about serving another. A consumer relationship is making sure that others serve you, and I just say, married people, what's your mindset towards your spouse? Is it consumeristic or is it covenantal is it i'm all in as long as you meet my needs or is it i'm all in even when you don't meet any of my needs and it costs me everything that's what it means to have a covenant love a covenant marriage and marriage every marriage is a covenant so in marriage covenant we say this i belong to you permanently exclusively and completely i will never leave you or forsake you i've seen all your flaws i've seen that you're kind of nuts And no matter what happens, I'm not going anywhere. That's a covenant relationship. I'm not going anywhere. And the cool thing about a covenant relationship is if you've already closed the door on that, you're not going anywhere, you're going to work a lot harder to fix where you're at, right? 
Like, if you're stuck there, and you are, you're going to have to, you're going to want to cultivate it. And that's what we see, like, even in Genesis 2. Genesis 2.15, the Lord puts the man, Adam, in the garden to what? To cultivate and guard it. And that's your marriage. That's your family. You've been given a garden to guard and to cultivate. Song of Solomon says something similar in 2.15. It says, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyard. There's this idea of like, your, your marriage is a vineyard, your marriage is a garden, there's foxes in it, those things need to be exterminated, right? Things you have to go after them. Like Adam, you've been given a garden to guard and to cultivate. When we moved to Canyon Hills, which is right over there, to plant this church, uh, we moved into a little track house, and it was brand new, and it was exciting, never had a new house before, it was super cool. And uh, the landscape in the front yard, how many of you guys have bought a new house before? Okay, so the front yard's like amazing, right? So like the sprinklers work, and there's sod, and it's like this Garden of Eden, it's wonderful. And uh, I've never had sprinklers that worked, so that was like really cool. And then what do they give you in the backyard? They give you just dirt, and this dirt is unbelievable. You can't dig more than three inches without a jackhammer. We actually bought a jackhammer. I own a jackhammer, I'm not like a jackhammer kind of guy, you know? I aspire to be, but I got one. I got it on Amazon for $130 with free two-day shipping. And it's like 60 pounds. There's no way anyone's making money on this thing. So anyway, so I got this jackhammer because that's the only way you can't plant a single plant without a jackhammer. It's crazy. You know, I don't know if you guys have planted plants like this where you like dig in like four inches and you go, oh, that's fine. Put it here and then put a bunch of dirt up like this. <laughs> like, like that's not the right way to do it. So, so anyway, backyard just rocks. It's like cement. It's crazy. And so here's the thing, guys. When you got married, you thought you were getting the front yard. You got the backyard, <laughs> right? I mean, you guys know that now. You thought it was going to be like that front yard. You thought like perfect sprinklers, perfect plants, waters itself, you know, all that kind of thing. And then you go in the backyard and you're like, I inherited cement, you know? So that's what happened. And you guys laugh because it's true, right? There's some place in your marriage where you're like, oh my gosh, it's the backyard. It's like, yeah, that's what you get. So you get married and, you know, the first few years you expect you're going to have like deep, fulfilling communication, unified and growing finances, great in-sync time management, great passionate sex, and all these things, right? And, and you didn't. You got the backyard. And uh, so, you know, so people, what they say, and I know you've at least thought this, you're like, I made a terrible mistake. I married the wrong person, right? I'm not going to do a show of hands. Uh, trying to help you. <laughs> but we've all had that thought, right? I married the wrong person. I was too young. What was I thinking? Or I didn't really, we didn't date very long or whatever it was, right? You had all these thoughts of like you married the wrong person. And in which case I would tell you, of course you did. Everybody marries the wrong person. Like you married a sinner. That was a bad idea. Like, why would you do that? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you married a sinner and you think like, well, and then your spouse, what did they get? You're a mess, right? So, but that's not a crisis, guys, if you realize that you got the dirt patch. You know, so you're in for the adventure. I got the backyard, I got the dirt, and now it's time to garden. Now it's time to cultivate. Now it's time to not be lazy, you know? Good news is, is that the honeymoon period is not the best part of marriage. Not if you're faithful to cultivate it, right? And perhaps, so, guys, maybe you're decades in and you're like, well, my backyard still looks like that. It's still barren, it still rocks. And I would just say, instead of assuming that you need a new marriage, what about the hard work of cultivating it? Not just one of you, both of you. Cultivate this thing, right? 
You know, no one's going to give you the maintenance-free front yard. You might think it. You might be in a spot right now where you're kind of fantasizing about some other person, and you're thinking like, man, that's so much better, and this is everything I ever wanted, right? You heard the saying like, the grass is greener on the other side. The grass is greener where you water it. And very likely, if you're being tempted into some sort of adultery right now, you're watering that thing like crazy. It's no wonder it looks green. Break up the hard ground. It's worth the effort, guys. Dig up the rocks of resentment. Learn how to forgive, right? Plant some seeds and be patient. (laughs) If it's been decades, it's been decades. You're starting now, you know, like water it with your love and your attention. You might need some experienced friends to come over and help you dig, help you irrigate, right? You would do that if you had that yard I'm talking about. You'd be like, I need some friends. Come over and help me. There are tons of couples in this church who would love to come over and help you dig and help you cultivate that thing. Seriously. So guard yourself in your spirit by cultivating love. And, um, you know, this story of Malachi. So you guys remember what happened after Malachi gave all these words, all these hard words to his people, you know, confront them about their sin. Do you know what happened after that? Remember what I said? Silence. 400 years of silence. What would that have been like? Like, for perspective, the Mayflower landed in Plymouth 400 years ago. That much silence. 400 years. So Malachi's like, and then it's silent for 400 years. It would have been very easy, guys, for them to believe that the Lord was just done with them, (laughs) you know? Done with their unfaithfulness, done with their betrayal, done with their treachery, guys. As the Old Testament prophets, they talked about Israel's sin and idolatry as if it was spiritual adultery. They called it spiritual adultery. You can look in the middle of Ezekiel for that. You can look in the book of Hosea for that. And guys, we have all been adulterous toward God, haven't we? We're adulterous in that we've chosen to love other things instead of him. We've chosen to love sin above him. We've all been unfaithful to him. Guys, our sin is treacherous. It's a betrayal to the person who loves us most. You think about how wife of your youth evokes some sympathy. Like, think about God who's loved you from eternity past, and yet we are treacherous in our sin against him. And as you look through the unfaithfulness, as you see in Malachi, it would have been utterly reasonable for Israel to assume that the Lord was done with them. Be totally reasonable. Okay, he's forsaken us. Totally reasonable, except, except for one thing the Lord had made covenant promises to them, right? The Lord had made covenant promises to them. As we know from the New Testament, if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. And so 400 years after Malachi went silent, a voice cries out in the wilderness, right? Just as Malachi had promised, it's this Elijah-like prophet, John the Baptist. John the Baptist was not the Messiah. In fact, in, in John 3, he says this, you yourselves bear witness of me, that I said I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. And he says this really interesting thing about his relationship with Jesus. He says this, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, talking about himself, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So John the Baptist was not the Messiah, but John the Baptist saw himself as kind of like the best man of the Messiah. Isn't that cool? He's the best man. He's the friend of the bridegroom. And he was the one to introduce. He was the one to kind of oversee the the wedding between God and his people. Jesus is that true Messiah, that true husband of his people. Jesus is God of the covenant. Become a man. 
to be faithful to his people, to ransom his unfaithful bride from all their sins. Isn't that amazing? We, by faith, guys, get to be included in that bride, be included in his bride. It's so cool. The fact that God chose an unfaithful bride shows that his love for you is not consumeristic. It's covenantal, right? Jesus is not in this relationship to get his needs met from you, right? He doesn't have any needs. And if he did, you couldn't meet him anyway. He doesn't say, I'm all in as long as you meet my needs. Guys, we're sinners. We have nothing to offer. And yet Jesus makes a covenant to meet your greatest need, to forgive all of your sin, to die on the cross for all your sins to be removed. And in his covenant, he says, I'm all in even if you don't meet all my needs and even if it costs me everything. And on the cross, it did cost him everything. It cost him everything on the cross for you. In fact, you know, one pastor said, and I really thought it was really helpful, he said, if the cross didn't make Jesus forsake you, nothing will. Right? He had his off-ramp. He has his way out. If the cross didn't make him uh, forsake you, nothing will. Is Jesus yours? If you think of this metaphor of like husband and wife, and is Jesus yours? Are you his? Think about that. Just make sure. All that qualifies you to be his is your sin. Right? Your sin and your simple trust in him to receive him. So I just asked you this morning, do you have sin? Are you unfaithful? Do you have an open hand of faith to receive Jesus? Guys, Jesus is this morning looking for the most unfaithful people he can find. You guys realize that? We know from the Old Testament that's his type. He's looking for the most unfaithful people possible. Look at him when he came in the flesh. Who did he hang out with? The most unfaithful people he could find. It's amazing. But he doesn't leave us unfaithful, right? He transforms us. His faithfulness actually makes us more faithful. If you're in Christ, his covenant faithfulness will so fill you that it will push out all of your unfaithfulness. You remember verse 15? It says, Did he not make them one, talking about you and your spouse, with a portion of the Spirit and their union? I love that. It's mysterious. A portion of the Spirit and their union. So it's talking about Genesis 2.24, but there's something more there, right? Someone more. The Holy Spirit. Christ the Spirit in you. Christ the Spirit in your spouse. Christ's faithfulness coursing through your spiritual veins, right? Guarding you in your spirit and making you more faithful. Because if you're in Christ, he will give you his covenant faithfulness so that you can give it to your spouse. Like You're not going to muster up that faithfulness in yourself, but as you seek him, as you abide in him, you will become faithful because you'll be filled with his faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that great truth. I love that verse where it says that if we are faithless, you remain faithful because you cannot deny yourself. Wow, to have the security that you will never leave us or forsake us or deny us because we're united to your son, Jesus. And you love us as if we are him. This is incredible. I pray, Lord, for any of the difficult work that needs to happen in people's lives and hearts. If there's any, anyone here that is just really struggling with a heart that, that's prone to be unfaithful, Lord, we, did, we pray that you would rescue him or her from that, even this morning, that 
This is you yourself speaking to them and calling them home. And I pray, Lord, that they would confess their sin, turn to you, run to the safety of your people, run to the safety of communion with you. And I pray, Lord, for anyone that's here that has been deeply wronged in marriage, Lord, I, I just pray, Lord, just like Hagar, that they would experience your presence, that you're the God who sees, you're the God who knows, you're the God who cares, and that they would find just a tremendous sense of your presence and joy and care. And I pray, Lord, for all those who past sins have been brought up again during this time and uh, sins that are covered by your son, Jesus. Pray, Lord, that we would walk in the grace that you give. And I pray for marriages that are here that have just been battered by just severe sin and difficulty and distress. And I just pray, Lord, that you would strengthen them such that they would have a story to tell that would be told for generations and would be told in the world to come. We love you, Lord. Thank you that you love us even when, and even especially when, we were unfaithful to you. You drew us back change us. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covegraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.